0: Hello, you're listening to the How To Academy podcast. This week's guest, George Saunders, won the Booker Prize for his debut novel, Lincoln in the Bardo. But long before that, he was acclaimed as a master of the short story form. In his new book, A Swim in a Pond in the Rain, he shares insights into storytelling from his favourite Russian masters. The episode is a masterclass in writing and a reflection. On life creativity and empathy from a very remarkable thinker apologies for the occasionally poor audio like most of our recent episodes this interview began life as a live stream and george's internet connection was not always stable it is worth sticking with though i promise but that's quite enough from me here are george and his interviewer hannah mckinnis
1: Laughed when I read this line at the end of your book that said, "One of the dangers of writing a book about writing is that it might perceive to be of the how-to variety, which we are obviously the how-to academy." But this book is not that, so it's good to get that out of the way first to avoid any confusion. So you don't want this to be a manifesto, but there is lots of rich advice in the art of storytelling and of writing, which we'll come to. But if it's not a how-to book, what would you say it is? What, what did you set out to do?
2: Yes. Well, I uh, I've been teaching, you know, some of the most talented writers in America for 20 something years now. And what I found is the general is kind of the enemy of uh progress for writers. If if you say one must always do this or one should do this, that doesn't really work on writers of the caliber that we have. So, the perfect situation is me reading the work of one student, marking it up in detail and sitting with her for an hour and discussing it. In this book, I th- my thought was, let's the two of us the reader and i huddle over these russian stories and i'm going to sort of presume to take the stage and and present my uh reading of the stories with a lot hopefully a lot of authority and you know uh, but at the same time i want the reader to be looking a little askance at me and saying well okay that's his reading now let me see how i react to his reading and in that way i'm going to find out something about my own artistic practice so rather than say thou should always do this or must never do this I wanted to just look at these beautiful stories and make some observations about how I thought they were working. And that's how I had done it in the classroom all these years. You know, we just get these 20 great young writers and we launch into these stories. And um it's kind of the energy of that exchange that, that really does good for people. You know, just the, you you go into a story with, I go in with a strong position and they push back. That's kind of the model I had for the book rather than, you know, all writers do it this way or every writer must do the following. I don't really believe that so much.
1: You went through quite a journey, really, writing it. Did what you wanted to do change as you went through? As you, It was different, of course, to teaching the stories to your students. You were going through them very much uh, on, your, on your own and writing essays about them. And I wonder if, in doing so, what you set out to do slightly changed along the way.
2: Very much so, yeah. You know, in class, I mean, I was always teaching the class while parenting and writing my own stories. And, you know, you'd kind of uh, put something together a day or two before... And with students of that quality, you're kind of just leading the horse to the water. You know, you say, hey, let's look at this page in the Tolstoy story. What did you think? I might pose a couple of leading questions. So at first I thought, oh, well, I'll just type up my class notes. But <laughs> when I went to do that, you know, they, they weren't essays. So it, it involved a whole year of, of extra effort of just trying to take those beginner questions and kind of make them into, um, I had to um I had to be the horse and be the water, basically, you know. So that was a lot more. And I loved it. It was so lovely to... Well, in a way, to find out that I've been teaching the stories only partially all those years, you know, but it was it was really wonderful to have to say, well, I'm not proving my point yet. I better read the story again. And to just kind of that, to be in this time of kind of crisis in the world and to be able to retreat to my shed and kind of just focus on Chekhov, it had a strange way of kind of um, making me feel somewhat more functional than world events would have made me feel. So I, I really love doing it.
1: And I expect, I mean, in many ways, these men, these four greats that you draw on, I'm sure, sort of, as you say, almost your companions. They're sort of providing consolation in diving into their work. We do through you, but I'm sure you did that first. And I wonder what is it about these men, particularly these Russians, writing in what you say was, of course, an extraordinary 70 year artistic renaissance in Russia, and their stories particularly fit your aim, make them sort of the ex- examples that you choose. But what I wonder what what it was that made them the ones that you specifically chose.
2: Yes. You know, the, the most honest answer, Hannah, is that I just, well, I love the stories and therefore they, they always taught well. When I brought them into a class, I think the class could feel that I was enthusiastic. So over the years, these seven stories were the ones that always lit the classroom up. You know, I would sort of, uh, go into school that day with a little bit of an anticipatory glee because I knew that the, the students would go nuts either, you know, positively or negatively about these stories. And I think for me, it's just because I was kind of from a working class background and I always understood fiction to be kind of a, you know, like a moral, ethical uh, activity that you, you read fiction to try to figure out something about how not to waste your time in the world and how to be a a, a better more engaged person and for me the russians always that's kind of what they where they come from they they absolutely love that challenge and that's what they talk about. so it's really just whenever i would teach one of these stories it would go well you know you could feel that the students were engaged and in that kind of a setting where you have 25 or 30 brilliant young writers you don't really know what struggle each one of them is going through You, you know you can't so The working theory is that you put your attention on an intense work of art and you talk about it. And in the perfect class, different vectors are going out to each person. It's sort of hitting them where they live in a certain way. And I think that somehow has really helped when the teacher loves the material, then that that whole process gets sped up.
1: I wonder then about the translating of, of the language from the Russian, because Obviously, one of the main things you want to teach and appreciate is the richness of the language and the poetry. How much is lost then in translation?
2: A lot, a lot. And we had, you know, early in my teaching career, I had a, a Russian professor come in and um, talk to us about this. And it almost destroyed the class because the she pointed out so many places where we were just totally missing the sense of the Russian, you know. So as a non-Russian speaker or reader, I just said, well, well, Let's pretend that we found these stories on the bus seat. You know, we just picked them up and started reading them in English. Uh, let's not even worry about how they depart from the Russian. They're, they're, they're pretty darn good just in the English. And since our, our goal is really to talk about the craft of writing a short story, we don't have to get too hung up on that. You know, we can just assume that they're pretty good translations and go from there. Although, you know, towards the end of the book, I do, in the class, we would only really talk about that when we were unsure about what a story meant. Then we might pull in some extra translations just to give ourselves a little more information, you know. But for me, the, the thing was always let's. It's almost like Story morgue. You know, you're going to say, "Here's some stories that have stood the test of time." Let's allow ourselves one pleasure read, and then let's go in and start taking them apart, kind of forensically. So, for that purpose, you can really use any story, but these are particularly good because they're they're kind of simple. So, the translations, I, I thought, you know, I'll leave that for for the real experts, I guess.
1: In analyzing the kind of power of fiction and the purpose of fiction, both as a reader and a writer. You talk about this as resistance literature written to challenge and antagonize and outrage, but also these stories are, and these are your words, for the most part, quiet, domestic, and really interestingly, apolitical. So I just wonder how how is it that they resist and challenge, but but also remain apolitical? And why do they stay apolitical?
2: Mm, that's such a beautiful question. I, my view is that there's nothing more political in the highest sense of the word than believing that the person across from you is, it, you know, is as real as you are. So the way that these stories do that is they lower us into the mind of a person that we might otherwise overlook. And, you know, you spend nine or 10 pages in the mind of someone else and your, your empathy gene goes crazy. So to me, that a political story, again, in the highest sense of the word is one that just in my view, awakens you to the fact that you're still alive, you know, and that your actions matter. So if we see a three-dimensional person, it's not us. And we do that kind of beautiful chemistry where we temporarily become that person. I can't really think of anything much more powerful than that. You know, there's a great Chekhov story that's not in the book. It's called Grief. And it's very simple, maybe six pages. And it's just this guy. He's a really lowly um, cab driver, horse-drawn carriage driver. And, um, we meet him on the day that his young son has just died. He's died that morning, but the guy still has to go to work. So he's doing his job and he, all he wants, as you do in that situation, is to talk to somebody about this loss, you know, but because he's such a non-entity, nobody will tolerate it. They, one guy hits him in the back of his head and tells him to shut up. And so this poor guy goes through the whole day grieving alone, silently. And at the end of the day, he goes into the stable and he just puts his head against the horse's head and whispers, I had a son. Now, to me, that's, there's not a more political story in the world than that because it says loneliness is real. And when loneliness gets inside a person, it's corrosive. And it, so I feel like these stories do one really big thing, which is they just remind us that other people are out there and that, you know, the kind of freak of consciousness makes us believe that we're central and that we're really the star of the show. But in fact, you know, everybody feels that way. Which to me feels like a moral, ethical uh, understanding.
1: And of course, that something sense. that we really, really need in this divided age. I think the idea that fiction and storytelling can can help you walk in so many different shoes and, and empathize feels incredibly important. Just to sort of um, stay on that point a little bit longer, you, you say then that a writer's beliefs should essentially be kept out of his or her story and that fiction doesn't do polemic very well. So, should an author's worldview be as many of these stories that you talk about are ambiguous?
2: Yes, I mean, actually, what I would say is, you certainly can put your beliefs in the story, but then it's kind of interesting to attribute them to somebody else. You know, so if I if I get up on a soapbox and I make uh, a big speech about something I'm passionate about, that's fine. But as a fiction writer, the the kind of higher level impulse is to say it's not me, it's it's Fred. So then you have the benefit of both the legitimate opinion. And the f- the flawed vessel that's pronouncing that opinion. And then the beautiful thing is you can bring somebody in who totally disagrees with Fred. And in fact, you find that that person's in you. You know you can actually occupy two sides of the argument. Now, that, that's one model of the story. And I think it's particularly the Chekhovian model, which is to kind of propel you out of the story less sure than when you went in, a little stunned by ambiguity in a kind of holy way where you're... For me, I always feel um, after a Chekhov story more aware of the, of how stupidly opinionated I am most of the time and how those opinions aren't really, you know, they're just sort of automatic. I just see somebody and I make a judgment. Uh, Maybe you could say that one of the tasks of fiction is to just remind us of that, that we, somebody walks by us, we make a spot judgment based on almost nothing. If we would turn around and walk beside that person for a while and start talking to them, even if we didn't like them, the opinion would get deeper. You know, there'd be more shades to it. So I think in these stories, that's something that happens. you, You know, you, you come in with a, a sort of facile quick judgment of a person and then over the seven or eight pages you're reminded that you know that's just a habit we have we 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 can do better than that and again this is you know one of the the pitfalls of this i think is that people think that fiction forgives everybody and it kind of does but i think also even if you have a villain in a story and your feelings deepen about the villain it doesn't mean he's not a villain and in fact i would argue that you even have a, a more Precise view of his villainy at the end of it, which you know you could say was a form of compassion, also. So, you know, but again, I I think you have to be careful. You know, I'm not really uh, one of the things I always have to remind myself when I segue out of teaching into writing is that the correct position for an artist is to not know anything, to not have any claims or any manifesto or any items of belief. But his primary job is to be in authentic relation to the text, which means to be in authentic relation to the reader. It's easy in this mode to get a little bit have a bullet point of big truths about fiction, but I'm really scared of that. You know, It makes you a lesser writer to have those lists, I think.
1: And you talk about that sort of the importance of perhaps avoiding big truths about fiction. And obviously, fiction does so much, and we'll move on to other things that it does. But you, you say that we shouldn't unduly glorify what fiction does. and And at the end, you actually look specifically at all that came after this Great period for Russian writing, and you talk about actually what came after was horrendous brutality and destruction, and that leads you to ask these questions about the claim that fiction can change the world. And I'm just interested in your thoughts on that that we should be careful of insisting it do anything in particular because ultimately that limits what it can do.
2: Yes, I, I think that's it's a hard position to maintain, but I think like anything else, we can say, well, what good does friendship do us? Well, you know, you look at your life and you can say, here's where I am without friends, and here's how I feel with friends. It's better with friends to some degree. It doesn't eliminate sorrow or suffering, but it it mitigates against those. So I think to me, that's the most sane position about fiction. You know, sometimes we we get carried away. And and, um, also, I think when you say what fiction should do or must do, it sets up a world where somebody who doesn't like art could start censoring it if it doesn't do those things that you listed, you know? So it's kind of, I mean, I, I tell my students that you're in this world as an artist to sort of exhibit freedom. Now, the insecurity of the job means that everybody wants to have a polemic statement about it. You know, you it's so such a, by definition, insecure profession that we all want to hide behind some concepts or some programs or a, a career plan or something. But in fact, you know, the challenge is you have to sit in front of your text and see what it's telling you if the text says oh you've always claimed that you'll never write about cleveland but the text says write about cleveland then you have to do that thing you know so in some ways it's a an ongoing discipline in finding the freedom within yourself which means having the courage to push off away from the shore and really be unsure of yourself you know that um
1: That's sort of one of your main lessons that I really want to come back to. I think it's sort of the first thing you teach students is to kind of let go of that idea of a writer that they thought they should be and go with the one that they authentically are. But can I just quickly ask you in the reading of these stories and just generally in the reading of stories, how important what the author intended or even wanted really is? I I think clearly you think it's very important. It's the premise of, of everything in the book, but you know, I'm sure people will be familiar with the idea of the sort of intentional fallacy and the death of the author. Should it really matter what the author intended? Once it's gone out into the world, it's really up to the reader to sort of take their own meaning from it.
2: Yeah, I think that's absolutely true. And that's what happens, whether we like it or not. For me, the the intentional part is that, uh, well, first of all, we have to define intention kind of broadly. When I send out a story, I'm not 100% sure of everything that it's doing, but I've read it so many times and blessed it. You know, I, I, I feel that as a whole, I'm, I'm okay with it. But for me, the, uh, we have to, when we're writing, I think we have to sort of labor under the assumption of control. In other words, when I'm writing a story, I have to pretend that I can control it to a high degree just so I can infuse it with my choices. In other words, what I'm trying to do when I'm revising is put as much of me into that story as I can, which I do by making thousands of small choices in the editing. During that process, I have to believe that my intentions matter. And then as you point out, once it goes into the world, it's amazing how people read it or or misread it. Or or sometimes it has benefits that you couldn't have anticipated. So I think in a way, you're sort of playing a game with yourself when you're revising, which is to say, yes, I have 100% understanding of my story. And I'm going to trust every little micro fluctuation in my judgment and make changes accordingly. And then at some point you turn that off and you say, okay, I did the best I could. And, and you send it out. You
1: talk about revision then. Revision and a willingness to revise distinguishes, you say, writers who go on to publish books and those who don't. And I'm really interested in that again. So, so for you, it's all about revising, about tweaking, retweaking, and adjusting does that not take away from sort of spontaneous creativity or the idea that you would just write onto the page stream of consciousness style?
2: Right. I I think, uh, well, again, everybody, you know, of course, for some people they can do that. It's not my way. I think most people overestimate their power to do that. You know, it's not as good as we think it is, but the way I see it is with, with the method I use, you get both. You are every day, you're being spontaneous and stream of consciousness in your writing and then you get to come back and do it again, you know, or or fix that. So it's a little bit like if you, you know, when you go into a recording studio and you're going to record a guitar solo, you can be spontaneous 15 times and then you can select which of those 15 spontaneous events is the best, you know, or sounds the most spontaneous when you when you put them together. So I, I'm aware that that's, this is, I'm a kind of a excessive in this approach. I, I revise probably way too much, but it's a way of bringing a lot of different versions of yourself to the page so you you know one day you wake up and you're feeling very generous with your prose, uh, and there's something to be said for that the next day you're feeling very you know strict there's something to be said for that and what i found is that over the long period of revising uh all of your different selves have a say and then the th- weirdly the thing starts to stabilize and and even elevate so uh, after a, a year or so of, of revision by this method, my stories feel mm, kind of better than me. They feel sh- smarter than I am, and, and uh, they move more decisively than than I do. So I tell my students that this is an excessive method, and it's not for everybody, but maybe a little bit of is good for anybody. Most of the writers I come into contact with, they don't revise quite enough. You know, they, they maybe put a little too much faith in their spontaneous utterances, you know. And the downside of that is that it kind of leads to writer's block I think. You know, if you think that you have to get it right the first time and your fingers are paused over the keyboard, you yeah, know, that's a recipe for terror really. I mean, if you if you screw it up then you're not a writer and you have to go to law school and everything. But if you say, well, the first draft is just the beginning. I I'm just going to put some portion of my thoughts down knowing I can come back and make them better and and make that the story look more like me, you know. But again, that's just my my approach.
1: There's a moment in, in, in when you're talking about Alyosha the Pot, Tolstoy's story. And I think in a sense, you contradict yourself. That could be because it's Tolstoy. But he wrote that in a day. And for that, you find it perfect. And I think you think actually, it's by going over it and by, you know, thinking about it too much, he would have perhaps ruined that perfection that you find in it.
2: Yeah, it's a little bit of of backwards engineering because it is Tolstoy, and it's Tolstoy at you know eighty eight or whatever, and he was by that point kind of not human anymore in his writing. But my theory on that story is that he it signals very ambiguously. It's hard to understand just what the story is about in a good way. I think so. He my my theory, which I c- could never prove, is just that he wrote it once. It's pretty amazing, but it signals confusingly a little bit. But for him to fix it, he would have made the story worse by by over-indicating he would have made it worse. So I think in some ways it was the culmination of this incredible career that he had to develop his instincts to such a a fine point.
1: I heard you saying, I'm stealing this from from a podcast that I think you appeared on recently, Uh, just to sort of take a a break while we're talking about, how how you described each four of these these greats. And I think, Tolstoy, was he your... Uh, someone an uncle who was scared to impress perhaps you could just go through those four if you can remember how you think of them I know that you've imagined being in the in the Russian baths with the four of them discussing the world (laughs) yeah perhaps you could tell us what it is that those four mean to you and and how you sort of feel like you relate to them
2: yeah I mean Chekhov is the the brother that I love dearly who's a little smarter than me but takes good care of me you know Gogol is just a crazy cousin who who says what everybody's thinking and then embarrasses himself and hides under the table but but everyone trusts him he's like the, the the court jester Turgenev I don't know Turgenev is kind of the older uncle who um goes on too long but if you are patient he gives you something beautiful and Tolstoy to me he's just a a father or a grandfather figure or maybe god you know god drops into the family party and um uh I really admire him so much I would say I feel the most warmth towards Chekhov Chekhov seems to be a human being who occasionally ascends into a a, a god, you know. Um, and um, my heart is the warmest when I'm when I'm reading Chekhov. But Tolstoy's kind of scary. <laughs> <He's->
1: <laughs> well, he, he. I mean, your your description of of Tolstoy is fascinating, and perhaps people listening are already familiar. But I I learned a great deal about him as a a man of, of of huge conflict. On one side, this ethical moral giant, and on the other, you know, that's called into question. Perhaps you could tell us a little bit about that.
2: Yes, well there's a there's a letter that I quote or it's actually a diary entry that his wife uh wrote and it just is the a terrible indictment of him as a thoughtless narcissistic person who doesn't help her and doesn't spend much time with her, the children and so on. Uh and you know, we know that he that he um he had sexual life that was lively, I guess. And um but I mean, you know, my thing is that you, you can admire somebody as a writer and then you can admire another person as a moral role model. Tolstoy, I think, would have been difficult to be around. He's a very powerful person and very uh, opinionated. But as a writer, he's somebody different. You know, as a writer, somehow the, you know, whatever defects you might have had as a person, they, they sort of assemble themselves in such a way that the, the person who comes off the page in his, in his novels and his stories is quite beautiful. So I, I think, I mean, this kind of ties into what I said earlier. You know, in my life, I, I don't really, I'm 62 years old. I know myself very well. I'm actually kind of tired of this collection of attributes that is me. And I've tried to outwit that person and I can't get out from under him. And But the beauty of writing is that for a couple minutes a day, or maybe just at the end of a, the process of writing a story, I get a glimpse of a person who's not so enslaved by habit, you know, not so conventional in his thinking, and especially whose love isn't so truncated by anxiety and by the daily pace so the person that i am occasionally on the page is the person i would aspire to be so i think we you know all, all artists and especially young artists should say there's there's the way you live and then there's the way you write and there there i don't really know that there's a connection you know there are i know really good people who aren't that great of writers and really great people who are terrible writers and uh every possible combination you could think of and i think it's sort of liberating to just say well you know, writing is, it's like dancing, you know, the person, well, if the person I am dancing is not the person I actually am. They're two different manifestations. And I think it gives you more power as an artist if you make that separation. And especially because, you know, you, you touched on this earlier, Hannah, the idea that instead of saying, I'm going to be this kind of writer and then going out and attempting to be that, I think a, a harder approach is to say, I don't know what kind of writer I am. And the only way I can find out is to write in a lot of different modes and edit myself and then see what gives off the most power. So that's a, a much more interesting process because it's really one of discovery. It's not one of aspiring and attaining. It's more like you're saying there are many people within me. Let me see which one is the most interesting one. Mm-hmm. Um, that That's the sort of a, something that could interest you for your whole life, I think.
1: And you talk about in the book, your very own um, sort of personal experience of making that discovery. I think you sort of hoped that you were going to be Hemingway. And then you discovered through process of, well, not elimination, but through a sort of a a working process that that Hemingway was not your style. And I wonder if you could tell us about that. It's really interesting the way that you learned that and, and then became to accept the writer that you are and committed to it.
2: Yeah, I think early on as as a kind of working class person who hadn't read all that widely, I think I kind of liked Hemingway's lifestyle, you know, he was kind of glamorous and hunter and a war hero and all this. And I also think I liked the impression he gave of of control. You know, he really felt like a person who knew what he thought and so I, you know, I tried to walk in his footsteps basically. And then I got to that point that I think so many writers get to where uh, you're old enough to know some things about life and you've, you know, you've paid the price for certain decisions and you've had some heartache. And so you've got a little set of things that you know. Um, and you're finding that the set of things you know is not intersecting with the way that you write at all. And the unhappy effect of that is you, you read something that you wrote and you don't see any sign of yourself there, which is such a, it can make you so heartsick if you're a language person. You know, if you love writing and you write something and it's, it feels like anybody could have written it, it's a real, Bitter kind of thing. So I got to that point and then through a series of things that I described in the book I I just realized that I was kind of from insecurity. I was uh, Leaving out whole parts of my actual personality. So the person that I was in real life Who had two kids and was working and you know relatively medium functioning in the world Wasn't there and the parts that I was omitting were parts that I was a little bit maybe ashamed of you know, I talked too fast I got kind of a manic brain. I'm, I'm always relying on humor in every situation. But you know, I had a first girlfriend in Chicago and at one point she, (laughs) she pulled me aside at school and said, you know, I'm going to have to break up with you because you're always making jokes and I just don't like it, you know, and, and, and I just couldn't resist it. I I made a joke, you know, in response. So, and also I really love pop culture. I love contemporary American settings and everything so uh but all of that i for some reason i had been keeping it out of my work mostly as, as i say out of insecurity so i kind of hit a, a crisis point and um without even meaning to that stuff got into one little silly thing that i was writing and it was just like night or day suddenly the the work had more fun in it and actually had more politics and it had more power in it so i think that's you know at syracuse i sometimes certain students will kind of enact that same path, which is they love some writer, Toni Morrison or uh, Cormac McCarthy or, or Zadie Smith. or they, they love that person so much and they have such high level language skills that they're spending a lot of energy sort of imitating that person and walking in that person's footsteps. And then you see the young writer in person and she's doing a totally different thing in her day-to-day interactions. She's got some charms that she's uh, prohibiting from getting into her work. So that can be another way of of making progress, you know. Just by saying, well, I'm like this in real life, so maybe there, there might be some overtones of that in my actual work. This episode of the podcast is
0: sponsored by Marquee TV. Marquee TV is an incredible streaming service that is a gateway to arts and culture. With my subscription, I've enjoyed watching some of the Royal Shakespeare Company's most acclaimed productions of recent years, including David Tennant in Richard II and Simon Russell Beale in The Tempest. I've seen multiple productions of The Ring Cycle, and Thelonious Monk playing in Brussels in 1963, I've watched Alice in Wonderland at the Royal Opera House, and Giselle at La Scala. Marquee TV really is the most accessible way into culture I've ever encountered, and a treasure trove for any arts lover. You can try it for three months for just 99p, yep, three months for 99p, with the code how to just visit marquee.tv and use the promo code how to to dive into the world of the arts like never before
1: and another of the things that you're sort of in your uh, you said it's not a how to but there are certain things that that you feel that uh, writers should should and certainly follow if they want to be in the footsteps of these greats and one of the things i loved is how you say it it's a story not a webcam when you're talking about this ruthless efficiency principle. So I just to quote you, the story form is ruthlessly efficient, everything should be to purpose. Our working assumption is that nothing exists in a story by chance merely to serve some documentary function. How do you then teach writers to understand what's necessary? Because of course a great part of these stories and, and any stories is sort of description and, and what we might sort of term decorative language. I wonder how you keep within this highly organized form and allow for that.
2: Right. I think the biggest thing is to, you know, when I was in engineering school, there was a um, distinction made between a rule and a law. So a rule is you have to not step on the grass or there's a, a punishment. A law is more like, well, you know, gravity exists so therefore we're, we're subject to it. We don't have a choice. Gravity just exists. So in this book, one of the things I was trying to do is say, well, let's see if there are laws for stories. You know, d- does the form itself force us into certain lanes as we're working? And I think the answer is yes, you know, as is true for any artistic form. So in the story, you know, if you, my theory is if you pick a story up and it's six pages long, you can feel it six pages long and it begins with once upon a time. There are kind of some laws that are, are suddenly enacted. One is that. This isn't going to take very long, you know it's going to be brief. It's implied that something meaningful is going to happen in that six pages and I think you can go from there to conclude that escalation is going to be an important thing you know if if we just say Jim was a happy boy and the next six pages are just he continued to be happy and the next day he was happy that that the the next day after that was a wonderful day because he was so glad um <laughs> we're going to sense that 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 story is failing to do its its fundamental work. So within that context, then, I think it just gives you a way to evaluate these the decorative language and the digressions and so on. So if somebody wants to put in a two-paragraph description of a flower, of course they can do it. The um, implicit laws of fiction, maybe it just gives them a little way to think about that. So for example, David Foster Wallace is a, a writer I love, and he will go on huge digressions in his stories. And what we notice, what I notice as a reader, is you, you're reading it and you say, "Oh, wow, a digression! He can't do that. He can't do that. He can't do that." He keeps insisting that he's going to do it, and then even that becomes part of your pleasure. You know, that becomes one of the features of the story. So I think anything is permitted, but the laws of of the form kind of keep sort of coaching us a little bit, and we shouldn't be uh, sad about those laws or 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 resist them in the same way that a dancer. Would be really silly if she if she ignored gravity. I mean, gravity is, you know, when we see a great dancer, we're aware that she's working against gravity. She's working in spite of it, which is why what she's doing is so uh, so amazing. So I don't, I'm not a big fan of rules, but in any situation, we, you know, we kind of have to know uh, what system we're in, and that will give us some. Uh, actually, it gives us a way to be beautiful within it. You know, if, if there were no laws, no rules, no limitations to a story everybody would be equally good at writing them. But it's the way that a writer, a given writer moves virtuosically within the limitations, I think that makes her uh, special.
1: Would you say that that is more specifically to do with a short story, the, the highly organized of what you call almost cartoonish, the cartoonish little machine?
2: Yes, I think so. I think just the brevity makes that. It's. I said in, in the book that the the story is very much in the same family as the joke. When you say, hey, you know, here's the joke. Everybody kind of knows that there's, you're supposed to laugh at the end and that all of the elements of the joke are, are to that end. I think a novel is a little more forgiving. I think the same principles apply, but the loom is so much bigger that I, I think it, it probably permits more.
1: You write incredibly interestingly about the relationship that the author should have with the reader. And, you know, it's a frank, intimate conversation. And you, you say that the author should sort of assume that the... Reader is is intellectually capable, is as worldly curious as they are. So again, I wonder how do you get that right? Because you don't want to assume too much of of your reader. You you want to assume their intelligence, but then you can't assume that they can fill in all the gaps.
2: I think uh, to me, you know, what I, when I imagine that reader, in truth, what I'm actually doing is I'm imagining that that's me i'm reading the story if i hadn't read it a thousand times already so i'm trying to i'm basically trying to uh impersonate my reaction to the story if i if i knew nothing about it which is a really complicated psychological thing but i think you can actually do it so you know i pick up my own story as if someone else wrote it and then note the energy pulses am i being pulled into it am i being pushed out of it so that's really the same thing as saying i'm trusting the reader is as smart as i am because basically the, the smart the, the writer is is me if i hadn't read it yeah so i think that that's my model for, for 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 doing it it doesn't work for me if i sort of imagine a disembodied reader out there somewhere you know we had uh the memoirist frank conroy came to syracuse one time and he did this really beautiful thing uh we were talking about this idea of audience and who you're writing for and so on so he he took a piece of chalk and he wrote this big arc like a rainbow on the on the board and on one end of it he put w for writer and on the other end, he put an R for reader. And he said, okay, every work of fiction exists somewhere on this arc. So if it's down here right next to the W, that's a, a story or a book that the writer wrote just for herself. She doesn't care if you like it. She doesn't care if it's totally impenetrable. It's a totally private document. Then on the other end, the R uh, for reader, that would be maybe a big airport book that anybody can wander into and enjoy. No artistic uh, complications, just you know, simple. And then Frank said, well, now you probably think that I'm telling you to put your story right in the middle of the arc. He said, but I'm not saying that at all. All I'm saying is you need to know where your your story is and then take responsibility for that. So if you write a really insular self-referential book that nobody can read, not even your mom, then you shouldn't really complain when it, doesn't get sold uh and on the other hand if you write the big airport book that anybody can read even if they don't know how to read uh you shouldn't be surprised that the critics don't like it so he was sort of saying this really lovely thing which is that you know the the job of the artist is to take responsibility for everything including the the way the book might land in in the world you know so that was kind of an invigorating thing and the students kind of went out of that with their minds blown a little bit because it gave them permission to do anything they wanted uh and some of the writers who you know had a kind of a uh habitual defensive position of saying, "Oh, I'm too, I'm too deep for the world. That's why nobody likes my work." That position was disabled uh, by that because it's up to them if they want to move it a little bit over on the arc. That's certainly within their within their power.
1: That's well, absolutely fascinating way of looking at it. And you you describe the relationship as a sidecar and motorcycle. That's your analogy all the way through the book. Perhaps you could explain that.
2: Well, one of the things I do in the book is I just throw out a lot of folksy metaphors that are, you know, um, just approximations of, of just sort of, you know, ways that we might try to think about it. And I say, if it doesn't work for you, don't, it's not a, you know, again, it's not a rule. It's just my attempt to, to reach you. I always feel like in a really beautiful story, like saying Master of Man, which is in the in the book, you have this feeling that the writer knows where you are at all times and it's just micro moving you back and forth uh, almost like her arm is tightly around you or as i say you're you're in the sidecar of a motorcycle she's driving and for me part of the so much of the pleasure of reading is that feeling of my my expectations being anticipated by the reader by the writer rather you know i'm thinking about this and suddenly the story runs out in front of me and and does just that with a little twist So this is another continuation of the idea of of intimacy between reader and writer. And the thing is, if you, in my experience, if at every step of the way, you're trying to keep that distance very small between you and the reader, then when you get to some outrageous moment where you need the reader to make a leap of faith with you, she really doesn't have any way to get out of the sidecar. You know, she's been in there so long with you and she's developed a kind of trust for you that when you take the motorcycle off the cliff, she's like, oh God, I guess I have to go with them. So again, this is just one way to think about it. But it's also interesting that if you, if you buy into that model and you're reading a work of your own in progress and you see that there's a problem with it, it gives you a way to work with that problem, which is to turn to the reader and admit it. So for example, let's say that I, I'm in a first-person narration and I'm telling a story. And somehow uh, that first-person narrator is obnoxiously conceited male narrator. And I I didn't really mean that, but I just edited it and suddenly there he is. He's an obnoxious mansplaining narrator. I could scrap the story because who wants to be in that guy's presence? Or I could build that into the story and have another character say, Len, you're an obnoxious mansplainer. You know, get thee behind me. Well, suddenly the, the reader who's been noticing that Len is an obnoxious mansplainer feels gratified because the story also noticed, you know. So this is again the motorcycle principle: is if you know where your reader is, you can always work with her. Uh, just like at a, at a lunch, you know, if you're, you know, you're having a lunch and your your lunch partner is dozing off, that's not necessarily catastrophic because you can wake her up. You know, uh, there, there's always something to do if you if you're acknowledging the importance and reality of the the other person in the in the conversation. I guess
1: one feature you say of a kind of beautifully ended story, or really important feature of a story, is that. We must be able to imagine the lives of these characters continuing on, that we must be able to imagine the ending almost as a crossroads, something going on afterwards. Sometimes I find that very frustrating. I want a story to be neatly finished. But that's a very important element, would you say, to a story that it goes on.
2: Yeah, I mean, it's a it's a feature that sometimes happens in a good story. Uh, and I think it's just because you've the writer has um, correctly understood that the purpose of the story is not to document that one occasion uh, of conflict or whatever but it's to kind of juxtapose different ways of thinking you know so there's a beautiful story called lady with pet dog of chekhov's it's not in the book but it's just it's there's a guy named gurov who is kind of a playboy you know and he, he has a habit that he describes of going and picking up women and cheating on his wife and he's done this for a number of years and he's perfectly happy with it and he meets a new uh lady this lady with dog and we quickly understand that this story is probably going to be about, we we think it's going to be about the time when this pattern gets broken and he actually falls in love. And that is, it turns out what happens, spoiler alert. Um, But at the end of the story, this couple that now, they've both made a lot of progress. He's no longer a creepy guy. He's a man truly in love with this woman. And she also was kind of a young woman bored with her marriage. And now she's in love with him, but they're both still married to other people. So- at the end of the story, Chekhov has just masterfully led us to this conflict. And we feel it acutely. We feel for this couple who's really in love. And he just says um, something like, um, and both of them realized that the most difficult part was now beginning. And that's the end of the story. So he doesn't tell us how that relationship ends up because actually that's not that important. It could end up they leave their their spouses and there'll be pain in that it could be that they don't and there's pain in that. It's almost like this conservation of pain in the situation. But the wisdom of that ending is that we get all of those possibilities at once. You know, they're all possible and none of them matter because what really matters is that they have, they have fallen in love. That's actually the whole point of the story is the question of that hangs over the story is can a guy as shallow as this be in love? The story says, yes, he can. Beyond that, this, it's kind of done, you know but i don't i don't think too that you can ever plan that or or try that i think by being very faithful to very attentive to the question that the story is asking that effect sometimes happens because that means the writer has properly understood what your story is about a, a story i think is never really about you know does a end up with b or you know does the ship blow up or or um any of that it's that's just the surface story really the, the surface story is you know will romeo and juliet end up together and that's sort of an occasion for what i've heard called the understory to happen which is the question the story is really asking and in a beautiful story that understory you don't even realize that that's what the story is about until the last minute and then it kind of dawns on you that the story has had its real heart on that on that question all along and the surface story was just an occasion to get these these uh, deeper questions asked <coughs>
1: It's so interesting again, hearing hearing these things from you, and I think it gives people a, a certainly a way of reading and writing that they you know rethink those things when they're doing them. And one last question from me, which is that this idea we touched on it at the beginning, more in the sense of how writing does it to you, but you said the true beauty of a story is not its conclusion, but how your mind alters essentially along the way. And the whole book really is about the part of the mind the mind and how it is before you've read the story and how it's altered uh, once you've read the story, not just your mind, but your, your worldview. I just wonder if you could describe in, in your far more articulate words, this magic, this kind of incremental change in, in, in our mindset as we read and why that's so important, particularly now, as I said before, in a kind of closed down sort of quite divided world.
2: I think, first of all, one of the things I'm trying to celebrate in the book is the fact that criticism, you know, we, we call, we talk about literary criticism and most of us are a little intimidated by that because of school. Uh, but really it's, it's kind of simple and we do it all the time, which is we, we engage with something, a text or a person or a party or whatever. And then there's a reaction that we have. It just, it's an automatic reaction. We don't have to think about it. We just have a visceral reaction to the thing. And then, In the best world we notice that reaction and we kind of bless it like we accept it we're okay it's it's our reaction for better or worse and then we try to articulate it and that's really all that criticism of anything is you know just to and but it's for most of us for me certainly was a big uh, challenge because i didn't accept my own opinions of things i thought too poorly of myself to accept my visceral authentic reactions to to stories and and actually to to life so it's been a, a long process to try to make my opinions better but also to accept them more more naturally so that's the first part and the second thing is okay we here's how i feel at 62 years old you know ancient that there's really one problem in life that i've had which is i know from certain isolated cases that i'm capable of being a very loving very present person just i'll have little you know just moments of of that we all have that Sometimes it's when somebody we love dies, for example, you feel suddenly you're just more you know uh, in your sorrow or uh, so that, so that's the the condition that I aspire to, but I just can't get there. and I wake up every morning and my mind starts cranking away, and I'm just me again, you know so to me, the the beauty of a a, a great short story is that it will, if you you know submit to it, it will actually temporarily alter your mind in the right direction. So when I read Master and Man, for example, uh, or, or Tolstoy's great novella, Death of Ivan Illich, I start out as just me, you know, I'm in a hurry, I shouldn't do this, I have to take the dogs on a walk. Uh, I get lost in the story, I occupy someone else's mind for that period, and when I come out, it's I'm in a different state. Now, really, I don't have to, I mean, everyone knows that. Do You do it for yourself and you notice it, but for me, that state is just a, a reprieve, from the prison that is my own mind and it's a glimpse it's like a sacramental reminder that hey i this idiot george actually can be uh different he can actually have a, a little glimpse of of what it might be to be a more loving person and then you know after an hour i'm i'm just my idiotic self again but i think even that little that little uh transformation is really important if only to remind us that it's possible you know uh, and of course it doesn't happen i mean I, you have to be careful because it doesn't happen with most stories, I would say that the stories with, that will cause that kind of thing are rare, you know, they're few and far between, but that's why I, I'm into it. And also I would love to think that one of my stories could do that for somebody else. It just puts a little more uh, goodness in the world, you know, and a very temporary, but also very real.
1: George, thank you so much. And I'm going to hand over, There's some brilliant questions coming in from the many people who, who are, who are watching. I'll go straight to, to this question, which I think Certainly, I, I was wondering all the way through, and you do answer it. And I, I, I sometimes wonder whether to ask you a question talking about an author or an artist. So, Larry says, "Do these concepts and practices hold good for other art forms—poetry, song, dance, sculpture—and what might the differences be?"
2: Um, I think the the general principles for me, anyway, the general principles book it holds, which is to say, as I said a minute ago, you you have your mind before you. Uh experience a work of art is kind of relatively blank, then something happens, and you're 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 altered that i think applies pretty much across the board now the the particulars of the form are gonna are um are, of course very important uh and you know as a writer, what I find is I'm reading my own work with a pencil in hand, I have a reaction, and the million dollar question is okay then what how do you, on what basis do you tweak The story you know and really it's almost impossible to articulate the uh the mind state that you're in at that point but as a practitioner that's all you really are doing is you're you're having a, a reaction and you're trying to tweak the text and you're trying to attain the perfect mindset out of which to do that which approximately you know it's open or it's not judgmental but it's funny how and i'm sure this is true in all the art forms that you just mentioned the this the, the kind of golden ticket is the mind state in which the artist needs to be to make her best adjustments. And, you know, when you get done with a life in the arts, all you really have is kind of an internal sense of how to get there. You know, I sit down to write and I can, there's some little weird neurological adjustments that go on and suddenly I'm in a position to receive my own text. That's your life skill. You know, it doesn't doesn't look great on a resume, but.
1: <laughs> I mean, you, you you talk about your writing process. Somebody was and your revision of of your work all the way through. And an interesting question for someone is how that process translates when you're not writing a short story. So in terms of um, writing a large scale work like Lincoln and the Bardo, where you can't reread the word and it's work in its entirety each time. And they ask, do you make a whole first draft and then start working it away at it? Or do you work through early segments over and over?
2: Yes, that's a great question. And actually I did read Lincoln... All the way through many many times at least once a week and sometimes uh three or four times a week and so i think i reached the limit i if it was longer than that i you know you you couldn't do it but i think the principles are basically the same in other words if you take any swath of text um you can apply these principles to that and it will become leaner and it will become more well one of the things i talk on the book is that if you revise a section of prose it actually produces causality if if you revise a section of prose it starts to know more what it is what it's about, and then it suddenly wants something to happen, or it asks, should something happen? So all of that was really the same with Lincoln. The only difference was it was just longer. And so the joke I made at the time was that I, I felt like somebody who had built custom yurts for a living, you know, those little huts, and then someone said, hey, could you build me a mansion? I'm like, no, I just build these. And I went, oh, wait a minute. Actually, yeah, I could link a bunch of the yurts together to make your mansion. So I think for me, the principles are kind of the same, but I have never really written a proper novel, you know, like a a 600 page kind of more traditional novel. I don't know how, how one would do that.
1: A few people have asked about kindness. You write about kindness. You write about homecomings and love and grief, but you're never mawkish. What stops a sentiment from turning sentimental in writing? Is it humor?
2: Well, I think part of, you know, this goes back to what we've been saying. I certainly do get mawkish in my drafts, you know, for sure. That's my natural tendency. And then at some point you're reading and you go, ugh, mawkish, you know, uh, and and your, your needle drops and you say, oh, God, I don't like this writer. Then you get to the real meat of it, which is say, well, what is it that's making me think this is mawkish? You know, what is mawkish? And if you're really on, you can say, at what line does the mawkishness begin? you know and then you can you can alter it you can now for me the the questioner is just right if i get to that place which i often do because i'm kind of a sentimental person uh humor is the best way to you know to reverse course and it's an example of what we talked about earlier if i'm becoming sentimental you know uh which means i'm invoking unearned sentiment you know well the reader is feeling that too and she's starting to pull away from me a little bit. Her her her, her sidecar is getting from, <laughs> moving away from my motorcycle. If I suddenly make a fart joke, she goes, Oh, wait, okay. So he knew that he was being mawkish. Okay, okay, we're good here. You know, and then she moves back in. Uh so it's it's part of that reader awareness. And in my case, the the polarity for whatever reason, psychological reason, is between sentiment, earned or sometimes unearned, and then a kind of cynical, uh, sarcastic tendency i've had since i was a little kid and really my whole process is is balancing those you know when i get too much enthralled to one of them invoke the other so it might be and i've seen this in some students there we all have those kind of polls and maybe craft is just trying to figure out what yours are in particular you might be someone who loves to explain in great detail uh vast political systems uh and you know a reader likes that to a point well when the reader tires of that, what do you have? What do you have to offer her to keep her I- engaged?
1: Are there simple techniques that can be applied to become the quote unquote empty vessel, separate from opinions, politics, and in particular the influence of the tone of voice of other authors?
2: You know, there, there's, one, there's one exercise that I, I sometimes give my students, it's, it's very simple. I'll, I'll give you two. One is simply to um, take a paragraph from a work in progress that you think is of your own, that you think is pretty good and pluck it out of its context and put it over on a separate page on the side of your desk. And every day when you're done with your quote-unquote real work, just go in there and start experimentally poking at it. You know, be a little bit more ruthless in the cutting than you would be. Move things around, omit them. And you're not really trying to make a story of it. You're not trying to do anything except you're tr- what you're doing is you're kind of experimenting with the voice under your natural voice. You know, you're trying to see well, if I deliberately freakify this bit of prose might it be the case that the real me is hiding under there a little bit because there's no there's nowhere is it written that the first thing you write is you you know you can actually it's your voice when we try to find our own voice it's a combination of what you utter and then what you do in revision to what you utter so that there's a kind of a freedom in that that you don't you're not really claiming it's your real writing you're just goofing with it the other thing is this exercise which is uh, a lot of fun in the classroom you i say to the students okay we're going to take half an hour and you're going to write a, a story and it's going to be 200 words long. It's not going to be 199 and not 201, but exactly 200. And you can only use 50 words to do it. This exercise is in the book. Yeah. Um, and so they they look at you funny and they hate writing under constraint. They hate you. And, you know, but I also say you're going to read them aloud at the end of the session. So then they hate you even more because now you're putting performance anxiety on. But um, so the game becomes they have to you know, you say the cat was white. Well, you just use that many words and you have to document it at the bottom of the file so you don't go over your limit. And what it does, in addition to irritating them, is it destabilizes whatever their usual approach to writing is. You know, usually when we sit down, we have a kind of a a set of mental procedures that we do that includes thinking about the writers that we love and all kinds of presumptions about how writing gets done and all that. This exercise totally disallows that. It's too frantic, you know. And, of course, what happens then is you, you quickly be running out of words because you have to repeat. Then your idea of voice gets destabilized because you can't do, quote unquote, your voice. You don't have enough words. And under the pressure of the performance that's coming up, people get really clever and really creative and kind of desperate, you know. Um, and they and sometimes they make the funniest, most lively things they've written in the, the whole two or three years they're in Syracuse. And the other weird thing that I can't quite explain is that they... Those little pieces always have rising action. What we call rising action, they always escalate. Um, so it's it's a good way of f- sort of forcibly reminding a person that you are not just the writer who comes out first. You know, your 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 sort of surface level idea of yourself as a writer isn't necessarily the most interesting version. So sometimes writing under constraint is a way of saying uh, it's almost like if you were in an emergency, you know, y- you would find out things about yourself that you didn't know, possibly beneficially. So.
1: I have to confess that as a writer of far too many words, I saw the exercise and felt very happy that I was out of your uh, watch and in my cozy chair and I didn't partake (laughs) in it. But I'm sure it would have been very beneficial. Somebody was wondering, do you lay out your loom and tapestry before you commence? Or do you write and then let the tapestry make its own way?
2: It's definitely the latter for me. Uh, My my loom and tapestry for some reason, I don't know why, it always turns out to be a little facile. You know, if I, if I make a plan, that plan is not so interesting. So my, my theory, as I explain in the book, is that, uh, and again, this, I don't mean this as a general theory for all writers. I'm just describing how, the, my, my own trajectory. But the idea is that if you, um, it's a version of no surprise for the reader, or for the writer, no surprise for the reader. If you start out to do a certain thing and you do it, there's a certain element of disappointment in there because the reader has already anticipated that intention. And then it just becomes kind of pro forma. So for me, it's best to start with some little fragment, try to refine it into, to the place where it's interesting. And then notice that that little fragment is always almost posing a question, you know, or, or, or causing some forward motion. And then my watchword is you, you want to be really alert to the energy of the story. What does the story want you to do? Um, for me, it's that was a huge step forward, but I think it's not for everybody. I know for a fact it isn't. You know, within this method, what you're doing is you're honoring some strong opinion you have. In my case, it's about voice. There, there are certain sentences that just offend me because they're banal. I don't like them. Uh, that's just my thing. But in trying to make my sentences sort of take responsibility for themselves, all the other things that we want to have happen in fiction, like plot and theme and character, that all happens very, very automatically. And and he, it's just again, it's just one approach.
1: Somebody asks, When do you consider a story done? Um, and I, I assume that you know, I suppose to just to take that on, if you're someone who revises and revises and revises, it must be very hard to just say enough now,
2: exactly right. That's that's the insanity part because you've got this Rubik's Cube that you've lovingly tended, and it's also alive so it keeps moving on you but i would say you know so many things in writing and this is a little bit of a cop-out maybe but in i get a lot of questions uh on email about writing and it's funny how the answer is always kind of like yeah exactly you know so if a writer says well, tell me about endings how do we end our stories how do we know we have revised enough the, the, the most honest answer would be go oh, yeah exactly that's that's the question and meaning each person has to sort of do it wrong in all kinds of different directions they have to not work on the story long enough they have to work on it too long and then over time i think you get an an instinctive sense of, of what an ending feels like for you so you know the actual answer is you have to put in that that ten thousand hours of work but you know it's sort of i think it's akin to what we do as people i mean if someone said you know how does a person know when a relationship is over or how does a person know when a relationship is wonderful there isn't a general answer. There's only the answer that you, as somebody who's been in several relationships, intuits. So that may be the deepest level of this artistic thing is that it, you really are in it alone in the sense that the instincts you're trying to cultivate can only be cultivated by a ton of work. And even then, you can't exactly articulate them and they're not general. You know, I find this so amazing. I'll, I'll work on a story and I'll feel so smart about my method and my approach. And I feel like I know everything about the story and then I go to the next one and suddenly all that knowledge isn't applicable anymore you know and maybe that's what I love about it is you know in you know in this life as you get older the curse of age is that you get certain you know you almost can't help it and it's kind of a yucky thing but with art the minute you're certain that's when you start to to die as an artist I think
1: thank you very very much for such an insight Um, and thank you all very much indeed for, for joining us
0: this week's episode of the How To Academy podcast starred George Saunders and was presented by Hannah McInnes. It was produced by Luke naylor Perro and myself and edited by John Doughty. There are plenty more literary luminaries in our archive. Isabella Yende, William Gibson, Elizabeth Gilbert and many more and you can find them wherever you're listening to this episode. As ever, if you enjoyed the show, please do rate, review and subscribe. Until next week, I'm Vas Christodoulou. Thanks for listening.